So praise the Lord, we are here this morning to look and to study further in the book of Revelation. This is part six. So uh, we are busy with the churches in Revelation. And this morning we're going to talk about the church in Perkamos. Perkamos. It's also known as the compromising church. And shall I say that we are living in a compromising age, aren't we? There are so much compromising going on. It is so applicable to our day. We started with the loveless church, which, yes, there are a lot of churches today which is loveless. You walk into them and you can't find Christ's love. You just can't find it. It is humanly pushed. It's all about me, myself, and I. And if it's about me, myself, then you can't find any love for Christ. And if it's all about myself, there's nothing for other people. Because I need to get, get, get the whole time. And last week we looked at Smyrna. And what a wonderful church that was. The persecuted church. And we remember what happened there when they had to go to the emperor's palace and, and they had to bow the knee and shout, Caesar is Lord. And I have got a lot of time and respect. My heroes of the faith are those people who walked into these palaces and, and they would not bow the knee to Caesar. They would shout out and say, Jesus is Lord. Uh, the refrain these days, my brother and sister, on you and me to do the same is, is shouting out. It is deafening, deafening. The world wants to crucify Him. And I say, He's alive. And I say, He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So, the word compromise means to accept, to accept a standard that are lower than desirable. And we all do that. From time to time, you and I, in our daily living, are compromising. We all have got to stand it. And at some point, you come and you say, I'm going to lower my standard to reach reality. I often say to people, you know, there's an expectation here up there, and then there's reality, and in between, that is disappointment. And it's so true that we need to look at what our standard is. Now, there's only one standard for the child of God, and it is the Word of God. And you need to stand on that standard. And let me say out right now, this should never be compromised. Never. If we compromise this word, then we fall into this classification of this church. That's where we will then be. So compromise is accepting that standard that are lower than desirable. It also means to agree or to settle a dispute by making concessions. I did it last week. I was sitting in work and there was a contract in front of me and I had the company lawyers in and we were looking at it and we said, look, what is the things that we can compromise on this? What concessions can we do on this with this other company we're going to sign this contract for? And they had to make concessions so that we meet each other in the middle. Now, it might work in a business sense, but it never ever works in the church. Never. We're going to see that today. We cannot compromise the Word of God. Then we will have a really slowed down, popcorn-filled church, and there's no convicting preaching then. Sinners can continue with their lives. 
We have this really great, vibrant churches going on. You see, the thing about Satan is, he has two weapons which he pulled out and he showed us. Two weapons against the church. The first weapon is intimidation. We saw that last week. I'm going to kill you. Bow the knee and say Caesar is Lord or I'll have your head. That's intimidation. Fear. And he drives thousands away from Christ. He drives them out by the throves. And the other one, which we find here in this church in Percamos, is enticement. It is coming and saying that it is not through fear, but through lust. You know what lust is? The definition for lust is? It is to satisfy self at the expense of others. The definition of love, on the other hand, is to satisfy others at the expense of self. That's what Eugene explained this morning. Jesus Christ benefited us at His expense. And that's the true love. But lust on the other side, the enticement that the enemy comes in, he says, look, some people is going to drive them away from the church through fear. But then there are those who's not going to go by fear. They say, I will not bow my knee. You can throw me in the dungeon. You can take my head. You can put me on the stake. I will not do it. And then what does he do? He comes in with his vials and ways of doing it and with enticement and the lure of the world, he pulls them away from Christ. And let me tell you, friend, whereas intimidation is in your face, whereas intimidation, you see the sword, you see the flames, enticement is more dangerous because it comes in small bits and pieces until it grabs a hold of you. And this is this church in Percamos. And this is why when you have this kind of uh, things happening in the church that you get corrupt practices going on in church. I'm amazed what I've heard during the week. I've listened to two sermons. I'm absolutely amazed what I've heard. And then you hear people sitting in the background clapping hands and shouting amen. And I think, Lord, they are so deceived. So deceived. And the only reason for that is, the only reason is, they have compromised. They have compromised. And that's where you get this corrupt preaching. I'll just throw it out to you. One person in New Zealand, there's a church going on there, and he's building his leadership on, on guess who? That old king of the Old Testament, King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, no, Nebuchadnezzar said, bring in young people into your leadership and beautiful people. Oh, if you're an ugly duggling, you won't be in my leadership. That is corrupt preaching. But let me continue because I digress and I want to get to the Word. Let's read about this church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to first read it for you and then we're going to unpack it. He says, And to the angel of the church in Percamos, write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where do you dwell? Where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You notice that he says that that's where Satan dwells, and that's where Satan's throne is? Amazing. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, because you have... There, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, 
who taught Balak, which was a king, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Can you imagine for yourself that in the church there is sexual immorality? Verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicotolians, which things I hate. Remember this is Jesus' words here. It's his own words. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That is hard words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to him the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And though I say it every time I mean it, Lord, that <laughs> I can close the Bible now, get in my car and go home, and I know that your word has been spoken in public and your spirit is already working. Your word, Lord, is mightier than anything else, Father, because it's the spoken word. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's have a look at this, uh, the, the location of this church. As you remember, we had down here Ephesus. That's where we started with the loveless church. That was that great political center uh, in, in that great city down there. It was on the coastline, the temple of Diana. They had to move it up when the water started coming up. And then we had last week that thriving port in Smyrna, that great commerce city where they made money, and it was also the access into Asia. It was the corridor into Asia and Asia Minor, into all of these things. A lot of trade routes went through there. The, the distance there was around about 100 kilometers, but if you go 120 kilometers north up to the top, on a mountain range, you will find Perkamos. Perkamos sitting up there, and this city here is that great religious city, a great religious city. Uh, it was really a little bit higher up, whereas this one here, Smyrma, was the crown of Asia. This was the place that was built up for emperors to go to during winter months when in Rome there was a lot of snow or whether it was winter. But it was certainly a center of pagan idol and emperor worship. That's what happened there. This is also the city where there was the most temples built in the day. The most you would remember that they say that this is the seat or the throne of Satan. Pagan worship. In fact, this is the place where you can say that the spirit of the world entered into the church. And I'm going to take you on that journey. There was built there also, like in Smyrna, there was also there a temple for Caesars. And Caesar Augustus was really, that's for him, that was one place that he liked to go to. And they also had this, the Caesar worship that happening there. And also, likewise, like in Smyrna, every year the citizens had to go there and declare their allegiance to Caesar as the Lord of all. So the same happened here from all of these cities. Where they were, the Christians from day one was under fire. From day one they experienced persecution. 
So he came to this place in winter months. Rome, really cold, and they came, and it was really a nice place for them. There was also a great healing spa here, which is, it was very famous in its day. And we're going to elaborate on that. Now it says there that this is where Satan's throne was. This is Jesus' own words. Why would he say that? Well, because when you came into the city, as you read about the people, they say, as you came into the city, you could not notice all of the temples around the place. But the biggest of all, the biggest of all, was the great altar of Zeus, the god of the Romans, the god of the Greeks, Zeus, that great mighty god. And as you enter the city, and this is only one that is a reflection of that, it was a mighty one. It looked like a chair built on a hilltop, and it looked like a throne. Hence, Jesus said that this is the place where the throne of Satan is. Not because it's a physical building, but because of all of the pagan worship that happened in that, in that city. Now imagine yourself... King Sway Karim down sitting in that city, and we gather in that city as a few believers in Christ with a lot of pagan worship going on around us. It's got to influence the church at some point. You have to be strong against it. Now you say, it is outrageous to think that, but let me bring you back to reality, dear friend. We are sitting in a pagan world, it is happening. No, we're not in Percamos. No, we're not in Smyrna. Yes, we're in Melbourne, Australia. But let me tell you, Australia is so derived with pagan worship, it is just not, you know, it's unbelievable. And here we sit as a church and we stand on the Word of God. The only thing that we have by the grace of God is that there's not swords walking around chopping off our heads yet. So here is that place. There was also this temple here, the temple of Asclepius. And that's interesting, and I made a note of this because I want to talk to you about this temple. It was the healing temple. It was the same place where this healing spa was. Now, Asclepius was the Greek god of medicine. And back in those days, it wasn't like medicine today where you go to the doctor and they give you a few aspirins. No, no, medicine in those days was associated with the occult, with witchcraft, in those days. And we'll get to that point. But not only that, there was a great library there, a big library. They reckoned there was over 200,000 of volume in this library. <coughs> Which, you know, you might sit back today and say, that's a small library in today's world. But in their world, that was a massive library. And that also was made note when a man by the name of Mark Anthony, you remember that name coming out of history? Mark Anthony, that he gave this library when they conquered, the, he gave this library to Cleopatra. You remember Cleopatra as a gift. Massive. This is the, the pagan center of the world at that point in time. They've got this massive library. A lot of books were written there. It's the first time that they changed from papyrus into parchments. When Christ chooses His title to speak to this church, what would He choose? This place with the biggest library in the world, the biggest books in the world. No doubt, no doubt those books are writing about what? Pagan 
worship. Volume upon volume upon volume, you can walk in there and you can do anything about pagan worship. Not only that, not only that, books about their gods. Because their gods would be half man and half God. And we see it today. We see it in movies like the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, that great bastion of a Christian movie. Let me tell you, that's blasphemy to God, that movie. It's not a bastion. No, no, no. It teaches your children that they are half men and half animals walking around. It's mythology. It's paganism. I don't know. Who, I don't care who wrote it. But I'll tell you one thing, that happened in those days. Half, they said that God is half man and half God. And they had all of these figures coming out. Do you remember the goat with the human body at the front and the goat at the back? You see, all of these things were thriving in the day. And these volumes were there. And then, let's see what Christ do. He chooses a title to write to them. I love this. He says in verse 12, And to the angel in the church of Pergamos, he says, write these things, you see, is he who has the what? The two-edged sword. Now, if you don't know these things, you would think, oh, here comes Jesus Christ with a sword in his hand. He goes, yeah, Excalibur. No, that's not what it means. We need to understand what he means by, what is the two-edged sword? The word. The word. I'm standing with the two-edged sword in my hand here. Hallelujah. Now let me tell you, friend, if you have the two-edged sword, you've got it in your house, but it is, if it lies on a desk, or in your, it means nothing. But boy, man, if you take that word, and it comes into this heart, and you speak it through this mouth, you know what it happens? It becomes a two-edged sword. This is what he's talking about. It's not only the written word, it is the spoken word. Now this is fantastic, because if we take this, and we go back to the Bible, we see first of all, in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, what the sword is. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, he says, for the word of God, the word of God is what? Is living. That's the first thing that comes out. Oh man, I've had a friend, he gave me a book and he said, just read this book, I open up the book, the first chapter, the writer of the book says, Oh, the Bible is old and dead. It's got dusty, moldy pages. <laughs> you know what I knew immediately? I knew he didn't read his Bible. Because if his Bible has got moldy, dusty pages, guess what? He ain't using it. And there's one thing that I've learned. If your Bible is falling apart, your life is healed. And if your life is falling apart, your Bible is like his. Dusty and moldy. No, 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 no. The Word of God is living, and what else? Powerful. I mean, it's powerful. And then it goes on to say, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Wow. That is powerful. Have you ever got, seen anything that can kill you that can pierce between your soul and your spirit? And then he goes on to say, and joints and marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Have you ever seen the Word of God in action? I have. I mean, I'm preaching this Word now for many a years, and I've seen the Word of God in action. I've preached sermons upon sermons where people come afterwards, and I can see the Word of God goes into their hearts, 
and it cut them by the heart. What cuts them? What cuts them? The Word of God cuts them. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've had people coming afterwards, after I've preached, come to my house. I've had people calling me up and say, the Word today really spoke to me. The Word spoke to me. It spoke to me. I can't continue with this. You know what's happening? That's the Word in action. But you say, how can I take your Word for it? But wait. There's examples in the Bible. Let's see the Word in action. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37. What happened there? Peter, he preaches to them out of two Old Testament books. He didn't give them his thoughts coming over his mouth, sucking ideas out of his thumb. No, no, no. When he stood up there full of the Holy Spirit, he spoke out of two Old Testament books. For time's sake, I'm just going to tell you. He spoke out of Psalms. And Joel gave a sermon to the crowds out of Psalm and Joel, what did he do? He used the two-edged sword to them. He preached to them. He preached to them and said, you need to repent. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And he used two, two Old Testament books to do that. And what happens? It says there in chapter 2, verse 37, Acts 2, 37. Now when they heard this, heard what? The preaching of what? Come on. The word. Listen, friend, you need to be excited about the Word of God. You need to be alive by the Word of God because it's alive and powerful. Here is these people, they are so waxed in their hearts. They're hard as granite. You know what cuts us through that? The Word of God is living and it's powerful. And here it happens. Now when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And how many were saved that day? 3,000 souls. The word in action. Forget about the 200,000 volumes you've got. All the books of the world, bring them today. Bring them all. Put them all up. And I'll take out one book. And that one book will show their folly. It will show them to nothing. Nothing. Listen, let me tell you this this morning, friend. The spaces between the letters of this book make all of the books in the world to shame. I'm not asking you that, I'm telling you that. Because we don't even understand the spaces between the letters that is written. So there it is in action. In action. Revelation chapter 19. This is great for me. Because you know what? He's coming back again. Let me show you what's going to happen in the future. Not because I think about this or sit around a little ball with snot running out my nose. Going, no, no. Because I know this is written down in the Word of God. He says in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11, Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and righteous and judges and makes war. He, his eyes were like flame of fire. Where did we meet him? Come on, you've done Revelation now for six weeks. In chapter 1. Is it the same Jesus? You betcha, it's the same Jesus. And now he says it. His, aims like, his eyes like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God. Say it with me. The Word of God. Hallelujah. His name was called the Word of God. 
I want to excite you like this church was excited when they must have listened to this letter and they read the opening line to them. This says, He who has the two-edged sword. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. I don't want to digress, but I just want to mention this. When we're going to get to this, I'm going to be really excited, okay? Because if you look at the, what they were wearing, his, clo- his cloak was what? Dipped in blood. And how did the armies look? Clean. Why would, why would the Holy Spirit allow him to write it like that? We'll get there. Now look at verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. You see what I meant? Yes, it becomes an old book. And means nothing if you keep it closed. But if you read it, if you study it, and if you put it to heart, and it goes into your heart, and you start speaking it, man, you start speaking with authority, with the authority of God. So much. So much. But come on, you're sitting there in this pagan worship. There's this huge library. Don't waste your time going to the library. Pick up the Word. Pick up those Old Testament books that you've got. Pick up the, the Pentateuch. Pick up the Psalms. Read them. Read them. If you want to build your vocabulary, build it on the Word of God. You will speak words which will surpass other people's understanding of what you say. They'll say, who's this man? Where did they come from? How can they speak with such authority? Isn't that what they said about the disciples? These were fishermen. Look at them. They've got no education, but they come and stand and speak on this stage. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter where you work. You carry the Word of God in your heart, and He will carry you through. doesn't matter where it is. doesn't matter. But I need to continue. I can talk about the Word for an hour, and we'll forget about the church. Yes, because I love the Word of God, and I love the God of the Word. Somebody said it to me once. They wanted to criticize me. They said, you love the word more than God. And I said, is there a separation between them? No. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17, even when it comes to the, to the armor, God, he says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit is what? The word of God. Look, even in Psalm, Psalm 59 verse 7, indeed, they belch their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? Now, I, let me make you understand this verse. You know, the word, words that you speak, they can make or break people. Did you know that? They can make or break people. It's like, it's like swords. It's like knives. You can put ointment on people and, and help them, or you can, you can stab them with words. The tongue is, is, is a very mysterious thing. And this is a sermon on its own. And here it says that, out of these mouths there comes filthy things. Filthy things comes out of it. It's like, it's like all of those things. It belches out all of the dirty things. You see the heart, you know, the mouth tells you what's in the heart. My grandpa always said to me, if somebody says one swear word and they go, oops, I don't know where that comes from. He said it's like a bee flying around. If one flies around, you know there's a beehive somewhere. <laughs> Let me just correct one verse. Not to go on a tangent. Because I just said it to you. I said you can build people, you can break them by words. Is that right? So then the church grabbed the following verse and they really, really misused this verse so heavily. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 21. Death and life is in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. 
You know what they say these days in churches? They say if somebody's dead, you just speak life over them. Life, 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 sunshine, wind, uh, happiness, life, because your words will bring him. No, no, that's not what that verse means. It means what you say to your children will build them. If you break them off with your words, it will go in and they will contemplate and meditate upon that. But that's not the word that Christ is bringing to this church. He brings the two-edged sword. Why? Because he's talking up against paganism. Now let's look at verse 13. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, uh, who was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There's four things that Jesus knows about them. He knows their works. We saw it in every one of the churches, didn't we? He knows their works. And let me tell you one thing. He knows your works today. He knows what you're doing. All the things that you do in front of everybody to see and also the things which you do in your secret closet. He knows your works. He knows everything you do. You can't hide from him. He says, I know your works and where you dwell. I take comfort out of that because again, like last week I said, friend, you can't hide from God. He knows where you are. You can't be lost on this world. Have you seen when somebody gets lost at sea? They are lost, absolutely in man's eye, but God knows where they are. He absolutely knows. And here he actually he says that that is where Satan's throne is. And then he says, I also know that you hold fast to my name. You see, this is the same. In those days, they said Jesus was half man, half God. And they didn't believe that. They said, no, no. He was fully God and fully man. They stood on that point. And it is good. And you can, you can comment that. Listen, friend, let me tell you. Today, these churches are doing that. They say, oh no, we can't compromise anything about Christ, but the rest we can compromise about. And that's what's happening in this church. Epicamos. They, he said also, I also know that you did not deny my faith. So you kept on holding on to my faith, even in the days of Antipas. Now Antipas, there's not a lot said about him. I tried to read up again about him. Even the scholars, the great scholars, they couldn't find a lot about him. But his name means a lot to us because it means against all. So here was a man, if you want to put the character of his name, the meaning to his name, to his person, you see that this man stood up against all of this pagan worship for Christ. For Christ. And what happened? He died for that. So he knows all about these things. He knows that that is the throne where Satan is. And then he says... But I have a few things against you. I have against you. It's all good that you, you hold on to my name. It's all good that your faith didn't go. But because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling blocks before the, the children of Israel, to eat sacrificed idols and commit sexual immorality. So who is this then? You have to go back to Numbers chapter 24 and 25, and 26. And to save your time, I'm going to give you the story, but go and read it. So, this is the story of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. You, you notice that he says, not the, the things Balaam is doing, but the doctrine. Doctrine is a code of belief. The things that you stand on. 
And you see, this, my friends, is what entered into the church. Because Balaam was a prophet. And Balak was the king of the Moabites. And Israel, as they conquered the land, came into the valley of, of the Moabites and they set up camp there. So the king Balak got really worried about this. And then he sent forth for a prophet. And they knew about Balaam. And they, he sent men to Balaam and he said, Balaam, if you come and you curse these people, curse the Israelites, then I'll give you money. I'm going to pay you off. Now listen to this and, and apply it to what's happening in our day and age. We have self-proclaimed prophets walking in the church today who's doing it just for the money. Just for the money. What are they are different from Balaam? So these people arrived to him and he said, Come in, please make yourself. And he waited that night. And that night the word of the Lord came to Balaam and he said, Look, you cannot do this, Balaam. So the next morning he woke up, he sent him away. He said, Look, go to your king. So they came back again with more money. And they said, Ask whatever you ask. And he says, If you give me a house full of silver. You see, there's a compromise happening here with this prophet. Eventually, he woke up after God spoke to him. He took his donkey and he's on his way. We know the story about the donkey, don't we? And he's on his donkey, on his way to the king. And as the donkey came through the vineyard, the donkey saw an angel standing there with a sword. But Balaam couldn't see him. So the donkey went to the one side and Balaam started hitting the donkey. And eventually he crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. And Balaam got really mad at him, strike him again. And then he walked on and the, the angel moved backwards into a place where they could not be going left and right. And when he came there, the donkey again saw the angel and just dropped down. So Bala came down and he hit the donkey again. And it's at that point that God opened up the donkey's mouth. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine you hitting this donkey and all of a sudden he goes around and says, Hey man, why are you hitting me? That wasn't his words, by the way. But then the donkey started speaking to him and God opened his eyes to see the angel. So he went and he stood there and instead of cursing the people, he was blessing them. So Bala got really mad at him. And, he, and, and, and this is where this comes in, my friend. Not, he couldn't do it by cursing. So Balaam then introduced this doctrine to Balak and said, look, this is God's people. If you can get them if you can get them to become immoral before God, God will turn His face away from them and they will be in your hands. So what happened? They sent women in from, from the Moabites in amongst them. And what happened? There was sexual immorality going on in the camp, which God forbid it. You see what happened? On the one time when he uses, this is Satan, he intimidates people with fear, but now he entices them through what? These beautiful young girls from the Moabites coming. Now what did they do? Not only did they have sexual immorality going on in the camp, but they pulled these men into worshiping their idol gods. And what did God have to do? He had to punish His people. You see the error? My friend, let me tell you today, it's not different. It's not different. Look at Numbers chapter 31 verse 16. He says, Behold, these caused 
the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague amongst the congregation of the Lord. The Lord loves people, but He hates sin. And you know what? Sin needs to be punished. And Balaam knew that. So he enticed this doctrine, and what happened? They came in amongst them, and they pulled these people away from their God, worshipping idols. I'm telling you today, dear friends, this is happening in the church today. In the churches today, people are worshipping idols instead of God. Idols instead of God. Peter warns against this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. This is not new. Friends, I'm not telling you something which is going to make your jaw drop. What? I'm telling you something which these people knew. It was in their day. 2 Peter chapter 2, 12. But these, like natural brood beasts, make, made to court and, to, and destroy, speaking, uh, big pardon, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. And those who count it pleasant to carouse in the daytime, they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of idolatry and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart-trained and covetous practices and are accursed children. Whatever you have in the church today, gay and lesbianism, let's compromise. Let's compromise. Hey, you can't hate these people. No, no, no. The Muslim is my brother. He's not my brother. No, no, when I look at the Muslim, I look at him in the love of God. You know why? I pray for his soul that he gets saved and, and go to heaven instead of a place which is, is not uh, meant to be for man. You get all of these things happening in church these days. All of it. But you know who was pushing this really hard? It was these people, the Nicotolians. Because it says in verse 15, thus. You see that word thus there? He said, but this doctrine of Balaam was pushing through the church. They were surrounded with pagan worship. And then you had this group of people called the Nicotolians. And they came. And what did they do? Oh, they said, we are so special Christians. We're allowed because we've got grace. And grace allows us to do a lot of things which were not permitted. A lot of things. It's happening in the church today. Oh, these were the super pastors. These were the people conquerors. And you have them today. If any man becomes more important than another man, he's in error. Eugene said it this morning, God's economy of scale is different than the world. The world said it's a pyramid up to the top. We've got the king at the top and the rest down. Jesus said, no, the king is serving the people. But these people, you remember these temples I was talking about? There's another temple there which was the temple of Dionysus. 
You know what this temple was? It was the temple of Bacchus. You know who Bacchus was? It is the god of wine and alcohol. The god of wine and alcohol. Let me tell you, dear friend, the church today is thrive with people committing to wine and alcohol. And you know what they say? Oh, Jesus turned water into wine so we can have a glass of wine every now and then, you know? And I'm I'm serious as I say that to you this morning. What I see is a compromising church. That's what I'm seeing. But boy, when you stand inside of that church, you will make your point and you will use the Scriptures as a sword, but not to cut between bone and marrow, spirit and soul. It It is to give yourself gratification, satisfaction that you're right. This is what happened. The God of wine and alcohol. It was a big problem. It was why Caesar Augustus went to this place because he went to this other temple which was there, which was the temple of Askelepon. You remember that? Askelepon. He liked to book himself in there to clean him up, to dry him up from the, the, the alcohol. This is all in history, dear friends. But I want to talk to you about this one because I believe this is so thriving in today's church. You wouldn't believe this. Back in the day, there was this temple, the healing temple of Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine. He's also typified by a serpent. Have you seen the sword with the serpents around it? The sign of medicine? This is where it was born. Now, in that day, at this temple, they used any means to give healing to people. They would use psychology. Have you heard about Christian psychology? Christian psychology. Let me tell you today, there is not such a thing. There is not such a thing as Christian psychology. It doesn't fit. It's like water and oil. But yet today, if you walk in, you say, oh, you can go and see our psychologist in the church. How does that work? I only know about one way of getting somebody's head right, and that is taking him to the mighty counselor. He'll set things in order. I don't need a psychologist to know. But in this place it was there. So guess what entered into the church there in, in, in Percamos? Oh no, you need to have a qualified, trained psychologist on your staff. Churches have them today. Oh, and when you go to him, you tell him all your secrets. Every single thing. You know what he'll do? Oh, just drink this little pill. Take this pill twice a week. Friend, the only pill that you and I need is the gospel. Yes? The gospel. You walk through a tunnel, and there's these holes in the walls and in in the roof. And as you walk through the tunnel, remember you're really sick, and you're walking through, and as you walk through, these voices come through these holes saying, you're not feeling bad, you're good. You're feeling better now. You are healed. You've got the best you can have right now. Everything is inside of you. Can you imagine walking through the hall? All these positive words coming through these holes. In this happened. It was actual this place. You're walking through. Man, I've seen this happen when I studied. I remember back in the day when we were studying at university and uh, one morning we played a trick on one of our students. I was a naughty student as well. You don't look at me like that. <laughs> And this one day, this, this, this student came to class, and we decided, we were a group of eight or nine, we decided we're going to walk past this boy, and everyone is going to tell him how bad he looks. 
So one person would walk past him and go, ooh, are you okay? You know, with that kind of face and go, you look a little bit pale there. No, no, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. Oh, that's fine. Another person would walk past him and go, oh, you're a little, little bit off color there, mate. No, no, I'm fine, honestly. And look, I'll tell you what, we did it a few times when past this guy. By lunchtime, he was sick. He went to the doctor. Now take that in reverse. Here you're sick and you're walking through and you're getting all of these nice words coming to you. Oh, you're fine. You know, there's a man who's preaching it from the pulpit these days. His name is Joel Austin. I'll name them. Oh, don't worry, man. Positive thinking, word of faith. Just speak positiveness. Just speak positive. That's fine. That comes from this. You see how the world has entered into the church. I'm showing it to you graphically here this morning. And then once you walk through that, there is a nice, warm spa bath for you. Oh, and you can just kick back and lie into the spa. And just think in your mind, all of these nice words is mulling around. Oh, you're fine. You feel the pain in your knees. It's excruciating, but you're fine. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's fantastic. Ooh, it's good. And then after you finish the bath, they'll put you in and they give you a great massage. You go, oh. If that didn't work, they have the shock treatment. The shock treatment is they put you into a room, they dim the lights, and by night when it gets dark, they would let loose some of the scariest non-venomous snakes. And if that shook you out of your shock, out of your sickness, then you're sick. In fact, they say at the back there was a door where they took out the dead ones who died out of heart attack. You see, friends, this is happening in the church today. There's in today this crowd coming up and say, you're fine. Just speak words of life. Man, I'm telling you, I've got people on Facebook as my friends. Some of you are on Facebook as well, and I see the things they post, and I go, goodness me, we're back into the temple of Asclepion. The same things. Rather than taking the time and study the Word of God. Study the Word to show yourself approved before God. And let me just, I touched on it, but let me just say as well, the Nicotalians were the ones bringing in these super uh, pastors or these super, you know, people coming in and say, oh, the church follows me because I know. They were people conquerors. The church is arrived about it today as well. You get these people, they are like the Pope. You can't touch them. I've seen it with my own eyes. In New Zealand, there was a man. I was at a camp. Uh, Andres, who's here in church uh, every now and then can tell you as well. I was standing there and this, his name is Brian Tamaki. He came there and his men were inside and they were sitting and as soon as he walked in, man, it's as if I, there was this roar going on. Everybody jumped up and he walks in. He gets to sit down and then, be, it, what's going on? We're back in the days of Pecamos. Compromise. Let me hurry on. He says in verse 16, Repent! Repent. That's the only way you turn away from compromising is repentance. Repent. You can't have any band-aid for this or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. With what is he going to fight? With the word. He's going to bring them the word. Let it be known today I'm preaching the word of God here today. And let this word that I'm preaching go against what's going on in the world today. Let it go against that. And, and you see, this is, he's going to come against what? Against the church there. This is what it is. He says to the church, listen, the pagans don't want to hear repent. They're not interested to, to even read this letter. 
But the church reader said, and he tells the church, you repent, or what? Or, I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, uh, 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 Peter said, I quoted this verse last week, and I thought I'll put it in on the board so that you can read it. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4.17. He says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment starts in the house of God. Pecamos was judged according to the word. And then he says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And man, is there a lot of writing about this verse. First of all, the hidden manna. There's two things they'll get. The hidden manna is the Word of God. Remember when he started with, to them, he says, he says, he who's got the two-edged sword, and now he talks about the hidden manna. When we go back, and we've read this in the New Testament, in John, when Jesus himself explained that the manna in the Old Testament was a shadow of him to come. He says it himself. He says, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The hidden manna is the word of God. The pagans won't want to have that. It's Jesus Christ, and we feed on Christ, the hidden manna today. The word is hidden for the world. It's here. They can come in, but it's hidden from them. You know, at one stage he said, I won't throw my pearls before the swine. I believe in that. That's why some people say, have you already preached to your office? The vibrant church, they come out, oh, you know, we're vibrant, we're on fire for Christ. Have you preached to your executive team already? Why would I do that? I'm not going to throw swine in front. No, they need to see Christ through me. And read this letter. And then he talks about white stone. Now this was an ancient practice. And there were few things that were supplied to this white stone. It was sometimes if you give somebody a white stone, it was a ticket for them to a banquet. And how wonderful will it be for us to have that ticket to the banquet in heaven. For them who overcome... For them who do not fall for this compromise, you will become, what happens? You will receive a ticket. You will receive a white stone to the banquet in heaven. It's also a sign of friendship. In those days, if you give somebody a white stone, it's a sign of friendship. I'll any time take a white stone from Jesus Christ to be a friend of Him. In fact, in, in John, He says, You are my friends. It is also counted to that. It means that you are counted for. In a court, it meant that you got freedom. If you got a black stone, you were guilty. If you get a white stone, you got freedom. And then he says a more important part. He says, and on that stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who received it. There's two points of views of this. Some people say that you and I are going to get a new name. And I think, you know, I've already got a new name. I'm a child of God. I'm a blood-washed child of God. That's a new name. I know that name already. But others, and I, I, I tend to lean towards this view of it, it's a new name of Christ, a new name of God. And you see, we need to follow that up by Scripture. If you look at the angels standing around the throne, every single moment while it rains outside, while you and I are sitting here, they say, holy, 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 holy. Have you read that in Revelation? Holy, holy, holy. Look, it's not a tape recorder that heaven has put on there just to repeat and loop itself. 
Why does the angel say holy, holy, holy the whole time? Because, friend, I believe every single, single time they say that word, a new attribute of God is coming up in front of them, which we haven't seen yet. Oh, we think we are so clever, don't we? We know nothing. We live in, in three dimensions. Man, we know nothing. So uh, let me finish this morning then to compare this to our parable. Remember, I said that there's seven parables in Matthew chapter 13 and seven churches in Revelation. And we've compared them. The first church was the loveless church and we had the parable of the sower. You remember that when he sowed seed amongst the wayside, the birds of the air came and when he gave the explanation, the birds of the air were what? Evil. When you read in those parables, bird represents evil. And then we had the second parable when we spoke about Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. We had the tares and the wheat, and they grew up together, and that was applicable to that church. Look at this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, the third parable, compared to the third church. Remember the church is a compromising church. It says another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and soweth in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now I've heard, and I bet you've heard so many sermons about this, where people say, the mustard seed is like faith. Yeah, have you heard that sermon? Oh, there are plenty of them around. I've heard lots of those. It's like faith. And what Jesus is trying to tell his people is like the little tiny mustard seed. That is when the faith is dropped in you and it starts growing, 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 and it's like a tree. Have you heard a sermon like that? But I found a problem with this. There's a problem in this parable. It is so glaring, but you need to understand the Bible to understand what Jesus was saying. If you look at this thing, the kingdom of heaven is like that mustard seed. He gives us a spe specific seed, a mustard seed. And then he tells us, which he sows in, and then he says it's the least of them, and then he says us what kind of seed it is. It is a herb. A herb. What do you do with herbs? It gives flavor. Yes? And then he says it becomes a tree, and there's the problem. That is where the problem is. A mustard seed was never meant to be a tree. Because a tree gives fruit, not herbs, not flavor. A tree gives food, not herb. And then he says the birds of it, but we'll get to that. You say, well, wait a minute, come on. Prove it out of the word. Let's go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 11, when God created it, he says the following... He said, let the earth bring forth grass, comma, yeah? And then he says, the herb which yields its seed, comma. Now we see the seed here in the parable. He says, the mustard seed, which is a herb, he said, yeah? And now he says, and, a third thing, the fruit tree that yields what? Fruit. And then he goes on to say, according to its kind. So in other words, dear friend, in the plant world, God has set boundaries. Similarly, in the, in the animal world, there's boundaries. 
Similarly, in the human world, there's boundaries which you should not cross over. Let me give you one example. The boundary of gravity. Do you know that? If you get onto a 10-story roof and you walk over the edge, what happens? You fall. You crossed a boundary. It's not meant for man to fly out of his own. Here is the same. He set boundaries. He says there's grass, there's herb that yields seed. That gives flavor. We know that. And there's the one that yields fruit according to its kind of suit, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. So what did God call it? It was so, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. But yet, when we come to the parable, we see that the herb now has become a tree. Can you see the problem now? The herb has compromised. Percamos has compromised. Now, when you compromise, it can't be good in a spiritual sense. Because whenever the church compromises, what does it compromise? Morality. We've seen it. I've, I've just preached it to you the last 40 minutes. That's what happens. And here he goes on. And this is how I know that it's not good. But he says, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The biggest problem of the church today is these birds nested in its branches. That's the problem. And the church has become a tree. The church now wants to take over governments to bring and usher in the kingdom of God. The church now wants to get involved with economies, uh, economy. The world wants to get involved with politics. Christians for, for this political party. Christians for this. Christians for that. No, no, no. The church is a herb. We bring God's flavor into the world. That's what we do. Otherwise, we are compromising. And if you compromise at that level, it's not long before you compromise morally. And there's two things which this compromising church brought in. I can flick back, but it is sexual immorality that was brought in. And what was the other one? He says, when we came back to them, he says, they sacrificed idols to idols and they commit sexual morality, immorality. So there we have it, dear friends. The church in Percamos, the compromising church. You say, yeah, it's true. Remember that I said there's a threefold application. We've dealt with the church, but what is the personal application? In your life, what are you compromising? What are you compromising? Remember, it starts small like the mustard seed. There's one for you, and it grows into a tree. And it nests all the birds in the air. And, and look, Christ will not confuse people. If he used in Matthew chapter 13 in the first parable about the seed, the birds as evil to come and take the word of God away, two parables later, in the third parable, why would he then say birds are good? They are evil, so the evil are sitting in the branches. My prayer is that we will stay strong in this church not to compromise. Is that yours? not only in this church, but in our lives as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning. Lord, I've said many things, but Father, it's more important that your Holy Spirit has spoken to us today.
And Father, we want to stand on your word this morning. And Father, it's so telling to me that as we study through your word and look at these churches, oh Lord, it is so applicable to our days. It is so true. I see it and we can see it around us. Thank you, Lord, that you use your word today to warn us and to show us the error and the folly of the day. And Father, all I can pray this morning for my brothers and sisters and myself is, Lord, use your two-edged sword to cut between both and matter in our lives. Father, to show us, Lord, help us through your Holy Spirit not to compromise. It is so easy to compromise, Lord. It's so easy to say, yeah, that's fine for today. Tomorrow it's double as hard to turn back. So, Father, I do want to pray this morning and ask you for your help and your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen.